You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 158, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Our Connection with the Elemental World, translated by Simon Blacksland DeLang. This is Part 9. It's an address. New Year's Festival, Dornach, the 31st of December, 1914. Concerning Cosmic New Year, the waking of the human soul from the spiritual sleep of the Age of Darkness. To begin our festive ending of the year, Frau Dr. Steiner will recite the beautiful Norwegian legend of Olaf Astason, who, as Christmas approached, fell into a kind of sleep lasting for thirteen days, the holy thirteen days with which we have become familiar in a number of different studies. During this sleep he had some important experiences, and when awake he was able to recount them. In the course of these studies, I have made it apparent that spiritual science can enable us to regain an understanding of treasures of wisdom, which in former ages were known to have been derived from spiritual worlds. We shall continually encounter this ancient knowledge of the spiritual worlds in one or another context, and we will again and again be reminded that this ancient knowledge derived from the fact that man was, by virtue of the way he was organized in former times, able to have a friendship to the entire universe and to all that goes on within it, such that, to express it in modern terms, the human microcosm was immersed in the laws, in the happenings of the macrocosm, and that, through being thus immersed in the macrocosm, he was able to have experiences about matters of deep inner concern to him, but which have to remain hidden while he lives as a microcosm on the physical plane and has access only to that knowledge which is available to the senses and to an intellect that is in bondage to them. We know that only a materialistic view of the world can countenance the belief that man is, as regards the cosmic order, uniquely endowed with a capacity for thinking, feeling, and will. Whereas, from the standpoint of a spiritual view of the world, it has to be recognized that just as there are beings below the human stage, there are also beings above the human stage of thinking, feeling, and will. Human beings can acquire a relationship to these beings when they immerse themselves as microcosms in the macrocosm. However, we must speak of this macrocosm in such a way that it is not only a spatial macrocosm, but that time is also of significance in the life of the macrocosm. Just as one must withdraw from all the impressions that can be made on one's senses from one's surroundings, if one is seeking access to the depths of one's soul, just as one needs to create a degree of darkness by excluding sense perceptions in order to kindle the light of the spirit, so must that spirit, whom we may call the spirit of the earth, be shut off 
from the impressions of the rest of the cosmos. The outer cosmos must exert the smallest measure of influences upon the spirit of the earth if it is to be able, inwardly, to concentrate its forces and capacities. In this way, the mysteries that man needs to explore in conjunction with the earth spirit, as a result of the earth having been separated as an earthly realm from the cosmos, will be unveiled. The time when the outer macrocosm has its greatest influence upon the earth is that of the summer solstice, St. John's. For this reason there are many accounts from former times of festive events and celebrations, which remind us that such festivals took place at the height of summer, when, by releasing the ego and merging with the life of the macrocosm, the soul surrenders itself in a state of intoxication to the impressions from the macrocosm. In contrast, the descriptions that we find in legends and elsewhere of what it was formerly possible to experience when the macrocosm exerts the least influence upon the earth remind us that the earth spirit, when inwardly focused, is experiencing the mysteries of the soul life of the earth in the infinite expanses of the universe and that when human beings give themselves up to this experience at the time when the least light and warmth is being transmitted from the macrocosm to the earth, they apprehend the holiest mysteries. Hence these days around the time of Christmas have always been regarded as sacred, because when man's organism still retained the capacity of sharing in the experience of the earth, when it was most concentrated, he was able to live in companionship with the earth spirit. Olaf Astesen, Olaf, the son of earth, experiences many mysteries of the universe during these thirteen shortest days when he is transported into the macrocosm. And the northern legend that has recently been rediscovered from ancient records tells us of the experiences that Olaf Astesen had between Christmas and New Year and until 6 January. We often have cause to remember this former way in which the microcosm participated in the macrocosm, and our studies will enable us to develop a closer association with phenomena of this nature. But first we shall hear the legend of Olaf, the earth sun, who, at this present time of the year, experienced the mysteries of cosmic existence by living in companionship with the earth spirit. So let us listen to these experiences. Bracket. The recitation now followed. Close bracket. Steiner again. My dear friends, we have heard how Olaf Astesen fell into a sleep that was to become for him a revelation of the mysteries of these worlds that are removed from the sensory world, from ordinary life on the physical plane. Through the legend we have received tidings of that ancient knowledge, those former insights into the spiritual worlds which we shall regain through the worldview of spiritual science. It is often said that a feature of accounts of the human soul's entry into the spiritual world is that human beings are able to behold the spiritual world only when they experience the portal of death 
and then give themselves over to the elements. Thus the elements of earthly existence do not surround them, as they do in ordinary life on the physical plane, in the form of earth, water, air, and fire, but that they are lifted above this outward aspect, this sensory aspect of the elements, and are immersed in the essential nature of these elements as beheld in their true nature, where beings are present within them that have a connection with the human soul. We were able to sense that Olaf Astason experienced something of this state of being immersed in the elements when we heard how he arrives at the Gyalar Bridge and how he crosses the bridge and explores the paths of the spiritual world that stretch far into the distance. This is a vivid description of the experience with the element of earth, of how he is immersed in it. The vividness of this description is such that he tells us that like dead people lying in their graves, he feels earth in his mouth. There is then a clear reference to his encounter with the element of water and with everything that can be experienced in it, also in conjunction with its moral aspect. He then also refers to the encounter with the elements of fire and air. All this is described in a wonderfully vivid way and focused upon the experience of the human soul's sharing in the mysteries of the spiritual world. The legend was discovered at a much later date. It was collected at the place where it was still living as an oral tradition. There is much about the legend in its present form that differs from how it was originally. The graphic description of the experiences in the realm of earth must doubtlessly have come first, then the experiences in the realm of water, and then the experiences in the realms of air and fire were probably far more differentiated than in the feeble echo that emerged after many centuries and is available to us today. The conclusion, which as it is now is no longer reminiscent, of the sublime language and superhuman overtones that characterized such folk legends, was without doubt, likewise, originally far more impressive and less sentimental than the present one, which is moving only on a human level. And the reason that it is moving is that it is associated with such deep mysteries of the macrocosm and human experience. At such a time of year as the present, if we have a right understanding of the seasons, there is much reason to remind ourselves that mankind was formerly in possession of a knowledge, albeit one that was far more hazy and nebulous, that has been lost and which must be rediscovered. We may, therefore, ask ourselves, whether in view of our recognition that it is of crucial importance for humanity that such knowledge is again made available, that we should not regard it as one of our most urgent tasks to do everything we can to imbue the culture of modern times with this knowledge. Much will be necessary if the change that has been indicated in the whole way in which people feel about their view of the world can come about. One thing will be particularly necessary, although this is one among many others. It is only possible to consider one at a time. 
It will be particularly important that our spiritual scientific conception of the world can enable human souls to develop reverence and devotion for what was known in traditional ways in ancient times about the great mysteries of existence. There will be a real need to realize that in our materialistic times people have neglected to develop this reverence and devotion in their souls. It is important that people become aware of the barren and empty nature of this materialistic age and of the arrogance that has been displayed in the early centuries of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period toward the revelations of ancient religions and esoteric traditions, which, when approached with the necessary reverence, enable one to sense the deep, deep wisdom that resides within them. How lacking in reverence is actually even our attitude today toward the Bible. Even if I disregard the appalling kind of modern research which totally mangles the whole of the Bible, there is still the dry and vacuous knowledge acquired through the senses and ordinary intellectual powers and the inability to muster any feeling for the immense grandeur of human perception that we find in a number of passages. I should like to refer to a passage from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, verse 18, quote, And Moses said to God, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But then Yahweh said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place beside me. Stand upon a rock, and when my glory passes by, I shall put you in a cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And when I take away my hand, you shall see my back, but my face will not be seen. If you take into account much that we have been able to embrace within our hearts and souls in the previous years of our spiritual, scientific endeavors, and then approach this passage, you can have the feeling that infinite wisdom comes to expression from it and that the ears of people in the materialistic age are so deaf that they can hear absolutely nothing of the infinitely deep wisdom that can be discerned in this passage. I should like at this point to take the opportunity to draw your attention to a booklet that has appeared under the title uh, Worte Moses, Words of Moses, and published by Bruns Verlag, Minden, Westphalia because the translations that it contains from the five books of Moses are better than in other editions. Dr. Hugo Bergman, the editor of this little book, has taken a lot of trouble over his interpretations. I have often emphasized that if we want to gain insight into the spiritual worlds, we will need to acquire a completely different way of relating to the world than the one that we have to the sense world. We have this world of the senses around us. We behold it and see it in its forms and colors and hear its sounds. It is a reality which we confront. It influences us. We perceive it and we think about it. That is how we relate to the sense world. We are passive. 
its influence works right into our souls. We think about the sense world. We form mental images of it. A completely different relationship applies when we are involved with the spiritual world. This is one reason why it is difficult to form a true picture of what a person experiences when he enters the spiritual world. I have endeavored to characterize some of these difficulties in a little book entitled The Threshold of the Spiritual World. We form mental pictures of the sense world. We think about it. If we accomplish everything that we need to do, if we want to follow the path of initiation, a situation arises that we can characterize by saying that we are related to the beings of the higher hierarchies in the same way as the things around us are related to us. These higher hierarchies form mental images of us. They think us. We think the objects around us, the minerals, plants, and animals. They become our thoughts. We, in turn, are the ideas, thoughts, and perceptions of the spirits of the higher hierarchies. We become the thoughts of the angeloi, archangeloi, archai, and so on. We are apprehended by them, just as we ourselves apprehend plants, animals, and human beings. We should indeed feel a sense of protection through being able to say that the beings of the higher hierarchies think us. They form conceptions of us. These higher hierarchic beings take hold of us with their souls. Thus we can visualize that when Olaf Astason went to sleep before the church door, he became a mental image of the spirits of the higher hierarchies. And, while he slept, the beings of the higher hierarchies experienced what the beings of the earth spirit, which is for us a plurality, experience. And when Olaf Astason descends once more to the physical world, he recalls what the spirits of the higher hierarchies experienced within him. Let us imagine that we are embarking upon the path of initiation. How can we relate to the spiritual worlds, which consist of a number of spiritual beings of the higher hierarchies, in whose midst we wish to be? How can we relate to them? We can address them and say, quote, How can we reach out to you? How do you reveal yourselves to us? Close quote. And then, when we have begun to understand the different kind of relationship that the human soul has to the higher worlds, these words will come sounding forth to us from the spiritual worlds. Quote, you cannot perceive the spiritual world in the way that you perceive the sense world, which appears to you and impresses itself on your senses. We must form a conception of you, and you must feel yourself in us. Your feeling of yourself must be of a similar nature to what the thought that you think in the sense world would experience were it able to experience itself in you. You must surrender yourself to the spiritual world, whereupon all the beings of the higher hierarchies who are able to manifest themselves to you will enter into you. This will then stream into your soul and live within it as a bearer of grace. In the same way that you live in your thoughts when you think about the world of the senses, 
If the spiritual world wants to pardon or show mercy to you, it seeks to fill you with its love. The fact of the matter is that you should not imagine that you can approach spiritual beings as you would the world of the senses. Just as Moses had to creep into a cleft of the rock, so must you make your way into the hollow of the spiritual world. You have to put yourself there. Just as a thought lives within you, so must you seek to engage with spiritual beings. You yourself must live as a cosmic thought in the macrocosm. What you experience in this way is not something that you can experience for yourself during your earthly life between birth and death. This can happen only after death when you are dead. No one can experience the spiritual world in this way before he has died. But the spiritual world can draw near to you, bless you, and fill you with its love. And then, if once you have been in the spiritual world, or while you are in it, you develop your earthly consciousness, it will be illumined by the spiritual world in its essential reality. In the same way that a human being confronts an object that is external to himself, and that object is engraved upon his consciousness and is then inside it, so is man as regards his soul being within the cleft or hollow of the spiritual world. See drawings 1 and 2. The spiritual world passes through him. Here the human individual is confronting the phenomena. When he enters the spiritual world, the beings of the higher hierarchies are behind him. He cannot now see their face, just as thoughts do not behold our countenance when they are within us. The face is in front, thoughts are behind. They do not see the countenance. The whole mystery of initiation resides in the words that Yahweh speaks to Moses. Quote, and Moses said to God, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But then Yahweh said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Steiner, Initiation does indeed bring one to the portal of death. Quote continues, And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place beside me. Stand upon a rock. And when my glory passes by, I shall put you in a cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And when I take away my hand, you shall see my back, but my face will not be seen. Close quote. Steiner again. It is the opposite of the way that one perceives the sense world. One has to summon forth much of the effort that one has made in one's spiritual scientific endeavors if one is to meet a revelation of this nature with the appropriate devotion and reverence. But then such a feeling of reverence toward these revelations will gradually grow within the human soul. And this reverence, this devotion is one quality among many others that we need in order to bring about the change in mankind's spiritual culture of which we have been speaking. The time when the impressions reaching the earth from the macrocosm are at their lowest level, the time extending from Christmas 
until beyond New Year and roughly until 6 January, is highly suitable for remembering not only the purely objective aspects of spiritual knowledge, but also the feelings that will necessarily arise within us when we embrace spiritual science. We are therefore in a very real way involved once more with the spirit of the earth, with whom we form a totality. And the old clairvoyant knowledge is also linked, as we know, from this legend of Olaf Astason. In the materialistic age, mankind has in many ways lost this reverence and devotion for spiritual life. It is of prime importance to ensure that this reverence and this devotion are recovered. For only through this will we be able to develop the frame of mind that can lead us toward the new spiritual science in the right way. At present, the mood with which spiritual science is approached is still similar to the way that one approaches ordinary science. In this respect, a thorough transformation is needed. As a result of losing its insight into the spiritual world, mankind has also lost its right relationship to its own essential nature. The materialistic view of the world has given rise to chaotic feelings about world existence in general. These chaotic feelings about the world and about humanity were bound to arise in the time of materialism. We have only to conceive of a time, and this time is our own, the first centuries of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period, when people no longer have any idea that man's being is of a threefold nature, that he has a body, a soul, and a spirit. For this is indeed the case. Thus what we must necessarily regard as the basic elements of spiritual scientific knowledge, namely man's threefold nature as a being of body, soul, and spirit, was something that has been altogether absent from people's consciousness from the first four centuries of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural era until our own time. Man has simply been man. And if anyone speaks about structures along the lines of body, soul, and spirit, this is considered to be complete and utter nonsense. One might think that matters of this kind are of significance only in the realm of knowledge. However, this is not so. They also have a significance for the whole way that human beings involve themselves in life. In the fourth century of modern times, or as we would express it, of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural epoch, three mighty words came to prominence in which the people of this time understood, or at least endeavored to understand, the very essence of human will in terms of earthly experience. These are deeply meaningful words, but they acquired their distinctive quality through the fact that they entered upon the stage of human history at a time when people knew nothing about the threefold nature of man. Humanity heard about liberty, equality, and fraternity. It was a matter of profound necessity that these words sounded forth in the context of modern culture at a particular time. They can only really be understood if one understands what significance these words can have for human nature as it really is. So long as these three words are imbued with those chaotic feelings that are engendered by the notion that man is simply man and that the threefold picture of his being is sheer nonsense, 
people will not be able to work constructively with the guidance which they offer. For the three words cannot be directly applied to one and the same level of human experience. This cannot be done. Some simple reflections, which probably, because of their very simplicity, do not unveil to you the gravity that underlies them, can indicate to you that if applied to the same level of human life, the essential meaning underlying these three words can lead to serious conflict. Let us consider, to begin with, the realm where we find fraternity in the most natural form, that of human blood relationship, the family, where we do not need to establish brotherly love because it is inborn. And then think how it warms the heart to see true, genuine fraternity within a family, where everything is connected in a brotherly way. But without wishing in the least to diminish the wonderful feeling that we can have of this degree of brotherly love, let us endeavor to see what can arise within the brotherly confines of the family precisely because of this quality. There may be a member of the family who does not feel happy within its justified brotherly domain and longs to escape from it because he feels that he cannot develop inwardly amidst its fraternal bonds, that he must leave the family where he can live in such a brotherly way in order to develop his inner freedom. Thus we see that freedom, the free unfolding of the life of soul, can be in conflict with even the most well-intentioned kind of brotherliness. Of course, someone who thinks in a superficial way may say that no proper brotherhood would fail to support a person's freedom. But people can say whatever comes into their head. Of course, they will say that everything should be allowed for. I recently received a dissertation in which one of the theses being defended was that a triangle is a rectangle. One can, to be sure, defend such an argument. It is even possible to prove that a triangle is a rectangle. Thus, one can also conclusively prove that brotherhood and freedom are compatible. But that is not the point. The issue here is that for freedom's sake, brotherliness has had to be abandoned in many areas and will continue to be so. I could give numerous other examples of this. If we wanted to gather up all the discrepancies between fraternity and equality, it would take us a very long time. Of course, one can, in abstract terms, imagine that everyone can be equal and show that fraternity and equality are mutually compatible. But if we are really serious about life, we will not be interested in abstractions, but in observing reality. The moment we come to be aware that man's being has a bodily aspect which manifests itself on the physical plane, a soul aspect which is enacted in the soul world, and a spiritual aspect that comes to expression in the spiritual world, we see the connection between the three weighty words that we have highlighted in their true perspective. Fraternity is the most important ideal for the physical world as freedom is for the soul world. Insofar as man dwells within the soul world, it is appropriate to speak of the freedom of the soul, that is, of social conditions which fully guarantee this quality of inner freedom. And if we bear in mind that in order 
that we may dwell in spirit land, each of us must aspire toward spiritual knowledge from our own individual standpoint, we would very soon come to see what would become of our spiritual conceptions if each of us were only interested in our own path and were to arrive at a completely different spiritual content. As human beings, we can find some degree of harmony in life only if we seek the Spirit, each one for himself, and yet are ultimately able to arrive at the same spiritual content. We can speak of the equality of spiritual life. Fraternity has to do with the physical plane and with everything that is associated with the laws of the physical plane and affects the human soul from this physical plane. Freedom relates to everything that affects the human soul in the form of laws of the soul world, while equality has to do with everything that impinges upon the human soul through the laws of the spirit land. Thus a cosmic new year must dawn, where there will be a sun that radiates ever greater powers of warmth and light, a sun that needs to bring light-filled warmth to much that has been living on in the age of darkness, but has been veiled in obscurity. This is the distinctive aspect of our time, that much is striven for and expressed that is not understood. However, this too can instill within us a mood of reverence and devotion toward the spiritual world. For whereas many people had an aspiration for fraternity, freedom, and equality in the fourth century of the fifth post-Atlantean era, and were uttering these words, even though they did not really understand them, it is now possible for us to understand them and to find an answer to the question, where did these words come from? The divine spiritual cosmic rulership has implanted them in advance into the human soul when it did not as yet understand them. In order that key words of this nature might engender true cosmic knowledge within the soul, even in phenomena of this kind, we can observe the wise guidance inherent in world evolution. We can observe this guidance everywhere, both in recent times and in the more distant past. And it becomes apparent to us that we often see only retrospectively that something that we did previously was actually wiser than we could have achieved with the wisdom that was at our disposal at the time. I drew attention to this at the beginning of my book titled The Spiritual Guidance of the Individual and Humanity. If you take account of the fact that certain seminal words enter the evolution of the world and of humanity, which can only gradually be understood, you will probably become aware of an image which would be an appropriate way of characterizing the part of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural epoch which has now elapsed. It can, in a certain respect, be compared with the time of Advent, when the hours of daylight are becoming ever shorter. And now, in our own time, when we are once again able to have some knowledge of the revelations of the spiritual world, evolution is entering a phase when we can have the idea that the days are growing longer and longer and we can speak of them in such a way that this present period can be viewed as comparable to the thirteen days and to the time of increasing daylight. But there is more to it than this. It is not right, not right at all, 
if we were to find only critical things to say about the materialistic period of the last four centuries. This modern age came into being through discoveries and inventions that are regarded as great in the materialistic age. For example, sailing around the world, discovering countries that had been hitherto unknown, and starting to colonize the earth. This was the beginning of materialistic culture. Then the time gradually came when people almost became suffocated with materialistic culture. All of man's intellectual powers were devoted to understanding and taking hold of the material aspect of life. And as we have seen, the insights, visions, and perceptions that had shed light upon the spiritual world from sources of ancient knowledge increasingly faded into oblivion. And yet it would be wrong merely to denigrate the materialistic age. It would be greatly preferable to think of things this way, that in its waking part the human soul has been thinking and pondering in a materialistic way and has given rise to a science and a culture out of these materialistic thoughts, but that the human soul is a totality. One could say that one part of the human soul established this materialistic culture. This part had formerly been inactive. Human beings knew nothing of outward science. They knew nothing of outer material life. For at that time the spiritual part was more awake. A drawing is made. In the last four centuries the part of the soul that brought materialistic culture into being was awake, while the other part was asleep. But it is also true to say that the forces that mankind is now developing in order that a resurgence to spirituality may take place among us, were implanted during the age of materialistic culture in the soul members that were asleep. During these times, mankind was indeed an Olaf Ostason as regards spiritual knowledge. This was indeed so. And yet humanity has still not woken up. It is the task of spiritual science to awaken it. The time must come when both young and old hear the words that are spoken out of the part of the human soul that has been asleep in the age of darkness. The human soul has been asleep for a long time, but the spirits of the world will approach it and call out to it, O Olaf Astasan, awake! We must prepare ourselves in the right way so that it does not happen that we are confronted by the call, O Olaf Astasan, awake, and do not have ears to hear it. The reason why we study spiritual science is to enable us to have ears to hear when the call to be spiritually awake rings out in the course of man's evolutionary journey. It is good if we sometimes call to mind that man is a microcosm and that there are many experiences that we can have as human beings when we open ourselves up to the macrocosm. As we have seen, this present season is favorable for such an endeavor. Let us try to make this New Year's Eve a symbol for the New Year's Eve which is a necessary part of human evolution, when the new era in which an ever greater measure of light, soul light, vision and knowledge of everything that abides in the spiritual domain and can stream and flow from thence to the human soul will begin to approach. Let us bring the microcosm of our experience 
on this New Year's Eve into the connection with the macrocosm of human experience throughout the earth. And we will then be able to sense something of the dawning of the great new cosmic day in the fifth post-Atlantean era, at whose beginning we now stand and whose eve we wish worthily to celebrate. The end of Lecture 9